This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And periodically, we bring you just arcane and fun stories about, well, stuff that's just laying around the house, stuff you take for granted. We've told the story of candy corn, where it came from, the story of the carrot, the story of the beard, and the history and story of the toilet. And today, we bring you one of those great all-purpose things around the house that, well, try living without it. And we're talking about the story of duct tape. Duct tape or duct tape? Whatever you decide to call it, the term is often used to refer to all sorts of different cloth tapes with a polyethylene plastic coating. It's usually silvery gray, but it's also available in other colors and even printed designs nowadays. If you don't have one in your garage, you're probably a bad person. Get one. It could save your life someday. Not only can it be used for a wide range of MacGyver-like makeshift repairs, it can also be used for shelter, clothing, and medical purposes. And for the record, duct tape has been in the dictionary since 1899. While duct tape didn't show up until 1965. Besides, you shouldn't be using duct tape on actual duct work, even though that is how it was marketed to homeowners after World War II today. It wouldn't pass inspection anywhere in the United States. Y'all need water, air to survive, nutrients from a chewing tobacco and Coke 45. Some say we need love. Even pain, others trust in money, but I think that's insane. Cause I only need one thing to survive. You can find it at a Walmart for a dollar forty-five. I'm talking about duct tape. You can bandage up your gut. I'm talking about duct tape. You can fix that crack in your butt. I'm talking about duct tape. There ain't nothing you can do. So quit your job, live your life, and go buy a roll The first material called duct tape was just long strips of cotton duck cloth used in making shoes stronger and for wrapping steel cables to protect them from corrosion. In fact, steel cables supporting the Manhattan Bridge were first covered in linseed oil and wrapped in duct tape before being set in 1902. But America's early love affair with duct tape went far beyond practical uses, even in the early years, much as it does today. In 1942, Gimbel's department store offered Venetian blinds that were held together with strips of duct tape. <clears throat> but the idea for what we know today as duct tape came from Vesta Stout, an ammunition factory worker and mother of two Navy sailors, who worried that problems with ammo box seals would cost soldiers time in battle. So she wrote to then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt with the idea to seal the boxes with a fabric tape that she had tested at her factory. The letter was then forwarded to the War Production Board, who then put Johnson & Johnson in charge of the job. Duct tape was now in the battlefield. After the war, duct tape product was sold in hardware stores for household repairs until the Melvin A. Anderson Company of Cleveland, Ohio bought the rights to the tape in 1950 when it was still used to wrap air ducts. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. 
It was around this time that NASA started using duct tape on board every space mission. Astronauts have used duct tape in emergency situations like in 1970 when the square carbon dioxide filters from Apollo 13's failed command module had to be modified to fit round receptacles in the lunar module, which was being used as a lifeboat after an explosion en route to the moon. A workaround used duct tape, which got the lunar module CO2 scrubbers working again, saving the lives of the astronauts on board. And did you know that duct tape can be used to remove warts? While doctors don't actually recommend it, some studies suggest that covering warts with duct tape for an extended period is more effective than existing medical treatments. The TV show Mythbusters devoted three entire episodes to exploring some of duct tape's most extreme applications. The team was able to successfully use duct tape to patch a damaged airplane fuselage construct a functioning cannon, and to lift a 5,000-pound car. Of the 18 myths they tested, only one was busted. It turns out you cannot use duct tape to stop a car that's traveling 60 miles an hour. And duct tape has even showed up in the sordid world of modern art. In 2019, a banana was duct taped to a wall, which sold in an art gallery for $120,000. Has duct taped a banana to a wall. Describe this banana duct taped to a wall. Duct taped this banana to a gallery wall. Another artist decided to peel it off the gallery wall and, yes, eat it. Because I was hungry. <laughs> and then there was the duct tape bandit. So I look like a duct tape bandit, baby. I'm not no duct tape bandit, you hear me? The dude who tried to rob a store using a mask made of duct tape. Duct tape? I mean, this, it's, it's just unbelievable. People don't think this really happened. And those are just some of the many uses for the awesome product we know as duct tape or duct tape. We leave you now with the duct tape song by an artist known as Van Pimpenstein. Or is it Van Pimpenstein? For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Well, I wake up in the morning And I put on my duct tape shoes And I walk down my duct tape steps And I read the latest news And I think of all the problems That this world has to face And how I can solve them all just a couple rolls of tape Well, I build the homeless some houses Put some clothes on their backs And I fill the bellies with duct tape mm. It's my personal favorite snack And I save all the trees I just build a big duct tape fence And I can do all that for about Oh, $50.17 So bring me all your problems Big, medium, small And a couple rolls of duct tape And I'll solve them all I'm talking about duct tape In the reds and oranges and the greens and purples And the mixes of this and that And it will all be the same color A beautiful shade of gray And there'll be no reason to fuss or fight Cause we'll all be the same Well, I'm talking about duct tape You can bandage up the cut I'm talking about duct tape 
continue with our American stories, and we have previously brought you the story of the world's most innovative school, the Acton Academy, and you can hear that story at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today we bring you a childhood story from its co-founder, Jeff Sandifer. And here's Jeff. I was born and raised in Abilene, Texas, a small town of 100,000 people out in West Central Texas, to a father I loved dearly, but who was almost out of the movies in the sense of he was like the movie giant, if you've ever seen it, where um, he was an oil wildcatter. And so we were rich one year and broke the next, even though he never let on. <laughs> so, uh, so it was a middle, upper middle class background, but with a dad who was in all good ways and bad ways, a gambler and an entrepreneur. I remember coming back from business school and oil prices had crashed, and by then I could kind of read a balance sheet and an income statement, and I said, Dad, look, you're broke. I mean, oil prices have crashed, and I said, you really need to sell your airplane. And he said, well, son, I'll tell you one thing. I may be going to the poorhouse, but they better have a runway, because I'll be damned if I'm gonna drive there. <laughs> so, and he didn't sell the airplane, and he made his way back out of it. And so, you know, later in life I knew, I think early, you know, kids know. Kids know when families are having trouble. Kids know when the father or the mother are having financial problems. But it's often an unspoken knowing. And so um, I had a wonderful childhood, but I'm certain that I picked up the tension of the times when he was scrambling, what that felt like. And he was ultimately very successful. It was just every time he would get ahead, he loved the game, so he would bet more. You know, he would keep betting to get further ahead, and then every once in a while, he would lose his stake and have to start over. And uh, that's just the way he was built. It was not my decision to work. I was a very good student, but despite that, uh, he insisted I go work in the oil field. And so I went out every day as a small guy and worked with roustabouts who'd been paid minimum wage, working from, as we said out there, from can see to can't see, from whenever the sun came up to whenever the sun went down. And I hated every minute of it. And it was one of the most formative things in my life because I learned that, you know, there are people that work very hard every day and bless them. I mean, you know, it's actually, I admire that, but it's hard. I remember I had um, one day it rained and it doesn't rain in the summer very often in Abilene, but it rained and we couldn't go out on the truck to do the hard manual labor. My boss was named Armando. And, you know, being that I was a middle-class white kid, it probably wasn't his favorite. And they're all gonna go inside and play cards, so I get to watch them play cards. I knew I couldn't play because I was only 15, but I could watch. And Armando said, oh, Junior, call me Junior, he said, see that big stack of rocks over there? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, I would like for you to move them to the other side of the yard. So these big giant rocks. And so I spent all morning in the rain moving those rocks. And I got finished and I thought, finally I get to go inside. And Armando came out and he said, oh, Junior, I am very sorry. I've decided I like the rocks back where they were. So I spent the afternoon, and every rock I moved, I was more determined I was gonna work for myself from then on, and no one was ever gonna boss me around like that again. So Armando, you know, whether he did it on purpose or not, I'll never know, but did me a great service, because moving those rocks, I was determined after that, you know, I was gonna be my own boss. My guess is that it, he, he did a lot of other things that showed he didn't like me very much, and I probably wouldn't have liked me either, so I don't blame him. But, uh, but I, do, I do remember moving those rocks all afternoon back to where they'd been in the first place. 
we were being paid $2.35 an hour, which was pretty good because minimum wage was $1.65 then. And I had worked about a 60-hour week because, as I said, we were working long hours. And I calculated to the penny what I was due, and I got my first check. And it didn't add up. And so I went to see my boss, and I said, look, I worked this many hours, overtime's time and a half, and for more than time and a half, I get even double time. And, and, he, and I said, well, you're missing some money. And he said, um, well, that's, we take that out for taxes. And I've been mad about that ever since. So uh, I just I couldn't believe they took a third of my paycheck out for taxes. Yeah, I've got dreams of things that I would do that would just be simple fixes, things like term limits. But one of the ones I would love to have is we just move tax time and voting both to March 15th. Because then you could have your year-end taxes calculated. And right before you vote, you write a lump sum check of whatever your taxes are, sales tax, all your taxes, and then you go vote. And that way it would be very visible to everyone right before they voted of how much you paid for all the services, and you could decide whether you wanted that, whether you were well served or not. I think it would fix a lot of problems. So after about three years of uh, working in the sun, I was very much tired of that. And, uh, and I can remember the, the, the last summer I really worked as a laborer, we started out breaking oil field line pipe. And this is pipe that kind of runs along the surface. And in those days, it was big heavy metal pipe. And so we were taking up an old pipeline and we would break off one joint of pipe and you could barely pick it up and put it on the truck. And you could look over the horizon and the pipeline just kept going. And so I wasn't very big again, so I had to jump on the wrenches to break the pipe out and pick it up. When we started that summer, you could see over the horizon. We worked all summer on that pipeline. At the end of the summer, you could still see all the way over the horizon. So however many miles of pipe we picked up, it didn't appear to have made any difference. So I noticed that at that job, the workers were all paid minimum wage and did their best to smoke dope and hang out and you know, be paid by the hour, so why not? And it took about three days for a normal painting job, to paint a normal uh, oil tank. Well, I went out and I recruited high school football coaches the next summer. My high school football coaches agreed to pay them by the tank and they hired their players. And so they would get out to the lease at dawn. They could paint three tanks in one day, not one tank in three days, so a nine times productivity gain. I put on a coat and tie and went and saw all of the oil operators and convinced them we could clean up their leases. We charged about two-thirds the price of our competitors because we had our cost structure was so much lower. And so that summer, we made $100,000 in revenue. We netted $80,000 before taxes. Still the best business I've ever had profit margin-wise. The coaches made three times as much as they would have made all year working as coaches. Um, and had the very good fortune that this is now 1978-79, oil prices have gone up in the early 70s, and now you have the oil embargo. So now all the operators have a lot of money, and they've never cleaned up their leases. So this was kind of as often happened in my life. I got really lucky with a good idea at the right time, and therefore we got to paint a lot of tanks. You had to be prepared. I just, I, I've just always been stunned at how lucky I am. So I'm not sure I'm stunned by how prepared I am, but I just get, uh, I do believe the luckier, the more you believe you're lucky, you actually see more opportunities. And so there's research that suggests people who think they're lucky actually have better outcomes. But I think it's related to the vision, and I don't mean long-term vision, I mean even up close, 
you expect to see good things and you see things other people don't see. But in any event, I know I've been really lucky. And most importantly, I got to stay in the air conditioning in the truck and I didn't have to work out in the field anymore. So that was, that was kind of my first real business and it was a lot of fun. And it was just as simple as changing the incentives. I mean, that's really all we did is we changed the incentives and it changed everything. Now we did have a little quality control problem that these coaches would paint anything silver that moved. So, I mean, they would paint tanks, they would paint gates, they would paint cows, they would paint. So, you know, like with anything, incentives matter and then incentives will create unintended consequences. They painted the ground a lot. And other, I mean, it was not high quality paint. Uh, we had to really come back to them and set some quality standards or getting paid by the tank, right? They would paint them as quickly and as poorly as they could get away with. So the story's fun to tell, but there were lots of bumps along the way. Uh, I do remember seeing one of those coaches my senior year, which was the, after that summer, and uh, he was the weight coach. So you can imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger, I mean, he was, you know, and he had on a beret. And everybody was scared of him, but of course he worked for me. I said, oh, hey coach, where'd you get that hat? And he said, oh, you like that, do you? And I said, no, I just asked where you got it. And so I got to run laps for, for the rest of the day. So my employee-employer relationship did not uh, extend to the uh, football field or the track circle. So as long as we each knew our role, I think, and the incentives were okay, we were okay in the oil field. And then I needed to, it was my fault that I didn't understand that didn't transfer out to the uh, athletic fields. Nor should it have, by the way. I, he was right. I should have run laps for being a smart aleck. And you've been listening to Jeff Sandifer. And my goodness, what a life story. Abilene, Texas, where we have good friends. If you ever get a chance, go just outside Abilene to Perini's. It's a terrific steak joint, and it's got this giant metal armadillo in the front of it. You won't forget it. And we love Texas. We love the whole country here. It's just all beautiful, and it's all so different. And my goodness, the work he's been doing with the Acton Academies. To learn more about these extraordinary schools, visit actonacademy.org. There are now about 150 Actons around the world, and there should be one in every community. And anyone listening can start one. You don't need to be an expert. You don't need to be a PhD, have a license. That's the beauty of Acton Academy. Go to actonacademy.org. You can change the world in your community. You can change the education standards in your community. That's actonacademy.org. Jeff Sandifer's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes to us from a man who is simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also a regular contributor here on Our American Stories. The Lone Ranger, with his cry of high silver has become an American institution ranking up there with Paul Bunyan in the realm of folklore and legend. To this very day, the Lone Ranger remains one of the most popular of all the great characters created during the golden age of radio drama. Here's the history guy with the fascinating story behind The Lone Ranger. The world, it seems, enjoys a good western. 
Movies about the American Wild West were the most popular genre in Hollywood from the early beginning of film through the 1960s, and the genre of Western was being used to describe films as early as 1912. Stories in the American West have been popular across a number of genres, from books and comic books to film and radio. Wild West adventures, usually featuring cowboys and gunslingers, have gained worldwide popularity. It's popular in Europe and Asia, it seems, as they are in the nation where they supposedly happened. But the Western, as an entertainment genre, only rarely depicts the reality of life on the American frontier. And the intersection of fiction and reality offers an interesting glimpse into both the world of the entertainment viewer and the real Western pioneer. And there is a great example of that in one of the most popular of the fictional Western heroes and the little-known real Western lawmen who were the closest thing to the Hollywood legend. So return to us now, to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse, Silver. Are you Silver? Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. The Lone Ranger rides again. The Lone Ranger first rode into the hearts and minds of listeners courtesy Detroit area radio station WXYZ, with the title role voiced by actor George Seaton, who later won two Academy Awards for screenwriting, and said that he invented the famous catchphrase, Hi-O Silver, because he couldn't whistle. WXYZ aired over... 3,000 radio episodes of the show featuring a Texas Ranger who fought outlaws accompanied by his faithful Indian companion, Tonto. According to the story, the Lone Ranger was one of six Texas Rangers who were caught in an ambush by the despicable Butch Cavendish gang. Later, a friendly Indian appears upon the scene and finds that one of the Rangers has survived. Tonto buries the dead Rangers but makes six grave markers to hide the fact that one survived. He then nurses the injured Ranger back to health. The ranger is forced to wear a mask to conceal his identity since he was supposed to have died, as he fights for justice against Butch Cavendish and his gang. The show was a classic western and was popular partly because of the ranger's strict moral code, which represented American values at the time and included phrases like, to have a friend, a man must be one, and all things change but truth, and that truth alone lives on forever. He only used silver bullets because they reminded him that life is precious and, like the bullets, shouldn't be wasted. Along with the radio show, The Lone Ranger spurred two film serials in the 1930s, a popular television show that ran over 220 episodes between 1949 and 1957, two different cartoon series, a newspaper comic strip that ran for more than 30 years, dozens of adventure novels and comic books, a video game, and hundreds of various toys, and seven feature films. And in one of the lesser-known connections, the Lone Ranger spawned a popular spin-off property wherein, according to the original radio program, Dan, the Lone Ranger's nephew, who appeared in both the radio show and on television, had a son who again took on the role of mass crime fighter as the Green Hornet. But the popular fictional character raises a question. Was there a real Lone Ranger? The answer is possibly. In 1915, novelist Zane Grey wrote a novel called The Lone Star Ranger, which itself was adapted for four different feature films. The character in the novel is fictional, but the novel was dedicated to a real Texas Ranger named John Reynolds Hughes. Hughes was known as one of the most effective of the Texas Rangers, and notably, when another Texas Ranger captain was killed in an ambush, Hughes, one of the Rangers' best trackers, relentlessly pursued the gang that had committed the ambush, somewhat like the story told in The Lone Ranger. 
While he was a rancher in Travis County, Texas, Hughes had tracked down a group that had stolen horses from his and other ranches. That drew the attention of the Texas Rangers, who recruited him. He served as a ranger for 28 years, the Texas Rangers' longest-serving member. While Hughes certainly inspired Zane Gray, who had traveled with him, it is less clear that he inspired the Lone Ranger, but his was certainly a story of a dedicated Texas Ranger. But when talking about the Lone Ranger, there's another story as well, that of lawman Bass Reeves, who was, according to one biographer, the closest real person to resemble the Lone Ranger. Bass Reeves was born a slave in 1838 and, as was common at the time, took the last name of his owner. Sometime in the early 1860s, he parted ways with that owner, some say because he had a fight with his owner after a card game and others credit talk of freeing the slaves during the Civil War. But for whatever reason, Reeves escaped slavery and went to live in Indian Territory, modern-day Oklahoma, living among Cherokee, Seminole, and Creek Indians and learning both the territory and many of the people's languages. He became a crack shot with both a pistol and a rifle. After the war, when the 13th Amendment passed and he no longer had to fear being returned to slavery, he moved to Arkansas, where he became a successful rancher and had 10 children. Indian Territory was notoriously lawless, and many outlaws fled there to escape justice. In 1875, President Grant appointed a new judge of the U.S. Court for the Western District of Arkansas, with the goal of addressing lawlessness in the Indian Territory. The judge then appointed a former Confederate general as the new U.S. Marshal, who then hired 200 deputy U.S. Marshals, some of whom were among the most famous lawmen of the West. Having heard of Reeves' knowledge of the Indian Territory and familiarity with its people, the new Marshal hired him as one of those deputies. Bass Reeves became the first black deputy U.S. Marshal west of the Mississippi. He served for more than 30 years and in that time arrested more than 3,000 outlaws. He survived numerous gunfights, even having his belt and hat shot off, but never once took a bullet. He was one of the most feared and respected lawmen of the territory. He was known for dressing fastidiously and for wearing two Colt pistols with the butts face forward for a quick draw. As was common for many Americans of the time, and certainly former slaves, he never received a formal education and so never learned to read and write. Before he went on patrols, which could take months at a time, he would have someone read the outstanding warrants to him, which he could recite from memory. At first, Reeves might seem nothing like the Lone Ranger. He wasn't even a Texas Ranger and was never shot, more or less nursed back to health by a faithful Indian companion. But deputies in the Indian Territory would often travel only accompanied by a posse member, who would be a Native American. Although he was most known for riding a red stallion with a white blaze that highly resembled Tonto's horse Scout from the Lone Ranger television series, he was also known to ride a white horse. And while he did not wear a mask, he was known to use disguises when capturing outlaws. It is not hard to see how this dedicated lawman, traveling alone with his Indian companion, catching the bad guys, could be seen as, as one biography described him, the closest real person to resemble the Lone Ranger. In the end, there's no compelling evidence that either John Reynolds Hughes or Bass Reeves directly inspired the creation of the radio character. The creators of the Lone Ranger, in fact, indicated that the character was inspired not by real lawmen, but by Robin Hood and the Western actor Tom Mix. But both Hughes and Reeves certainly bore some resemblance to the legendary masked hero and remind us that the lone lawman dispensing justice on a wild frontier is not completely a fabrication of the entertainment industry. There were, in fact, some actual good guys in the Wild West, even if they did not always wear a white hat. It is telling that Hughes and Reeves were somewhat similar stories. Both had spent time and largely learned the skill that served them in the Indian Territory. 
Both had been successful ranchers, where they developed a vested interest in protecting the people settling the frontier from lawlessness. Both served long and distinguished careers in law enforcement, part of the special breed that bridged the gap between the Wild West and the modern era. And both were true heroes, even though neither is nearly as well known as the fictional Lone Ranger. Bass Reeves died of kidney disease in 1910 at the age of 71. John Hughes, in ill health and depressed as all of his old friends had passed away, tragically took his own life in 1947. He was 92. And what a great job by the history guy, and as is so often the case in fiction, it's often a merger of fact and fiction, and it's hard for anybody to remember. A great story by the history guy. Go and Google his name and check out his work on YouTube. The story of the man behind the mask, the real Lone Ranger exposed, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from Michael Lella, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org, that's F-E-E.org, the terrific website of the Foundation for Economic Education, and he graciously recorded it for us. If you were 17 and growing up in Milan, Italy in 1943, more than likely you would have been forced, indoctrinated, and brainwashed into fascism. The dictator of Italy responsible for it, Benito Mussolini, had been in power since 1922. My dad was born in 1926. The voice and image of Il Duce, as Italians were obliged to call Mussolini, were ubiquitous in Italy at the time. Mussolini would ultimately drag the country into the Second World War on the side of Germany's Adolf Hitler. My father is now 92 and lives an hour north of Milan. His name is Pino Lella. If you had to pick a time to be a teenager in Milan, 1943 would have been the worst of choices. In June, as my dad was nearing his 17th birthday, the British began an intensive six-month bombing campaign. It left a third of the city's population homeless, about 400,000 people. My father and his younger brother, my uncle Mimo, narrowly escaped death one night following the bombing of a movie theater. They were there to see you were never lovelier with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth, and they witnessed many casualties. My grandfather, Michele, in an effort to keep his boys from becoming victims of the continued bombing, sent my father and uncle to a Catholic boys' school. They were familiar with this school because it was there that they had learned to ski and loved the mountains as children. The school was located high in the Alps, above Lake Como, not far from the Swiss border. It was called Casa Alpina, and it was run by a very courageous priest by the name of Father Luigi Ray. Being the oldest of the boys, my dad was singled out by Father Ray and trained to become an alpine guide. At first, my father knew nothing of the Nazi brutality against Jews and others. In fact, he had learned to respect the Nazi high command, many of whom were customers of his family's leather goods store in Milan. 
They had occupied Milan as brothers in arms to defend Milan from the British bombing. But my dad became brutally aware of the Nazi crimes in September of 1943 when word came of 52 prominent Jews being rounded up by the Nazis and executed in the village of Mena on Lago Maggiore. Their bodies were thrown into the lake for the local citizens to see. It was then that many Italians rebelled and began hiding and protecting their Jewish Italian friends. They formed an underground railroad, a network of escape routes, similar to the one that was developed to save American slaves before and during America's Civil War. One of the network routes led through to Casalpina. This was where their Lello brothers were sent to wait out the bombing of Milan. For nine harrowing months while at Casalpina, from the fall of 1943 through June of 1944, the month of his 18th birthday, my father guided many Jewish refugees across the Alps into neutral Switzerland to escape Italy. He risked his life evading Nazi patrols, surviving avalanches and grenade attacks. He was robbed by bandits disguising themselves as anti-fascist partisans. He often carried the weak and the elderly on his back in the dead of winter over the top of the Alps, some of the world's most rugged mountain terrain. Some had embarked on this journey with my father in such a way that they wore street shoes, not exactly hiking gear for the Alps in below zero temperatures. At the time, my dad simply did what he was told to do and thought little of it. Father Ray instructed him to take people to safety, and so he did it. He knew it was dangerous, of course, but even to this day, he doesn't think of what he did as heroic. He had faith in doing the right thing, and such a high regard for Father Ray that he would have done anything for him. The missions gave him an identity, a meaningful purpose, and an opportunity to lead. And like many 17-year-olds with reckless abandon, he thrived on the excitement and adventure of it all, at least while it lasted. In June of 1944, my father turned 18, the age at which young Italians were drafted by the state into the military. He had two choices. He could join Mussolini's fascist army and quite likely end up on the Russian front. His other option was to conscript with the German army. His aunt and uncle had connections that might land him a secure and hopefully a safer job in the organization Todd. This was the armament and the construction division of the Third Reich. For his safety, but against his wishes, Pino's father and mother talked him into enlisting in the German army. Dad reluctantly donned the military uniform with a Nazi swastika. What happened next was almost unbelievable. Through a series of extraordinary circumstances, including his wounding during an Allied bombing raid, my father was ordered back to Milan to convalesce for two weeks. Then, with a little help from family and his ability to speak French and drive a car, he landed a position as the personal driver and confidant for one of Hitler's most mysterious officers in the German high command. He was a man so powerful in Italy that he responded directly, personally, and only to Adolf Hitler. His name was General Hans Lairs, the plenipotentiary of the Italian sector for organization taught. 
Tupino's aunt and uncle, his assignment as the driver for such a powerful figure was a serendipitous opportunity of a lifetime. It could help change the direction of the war. They understood the importance of it because they were already working in secret for the Allies and the Italian resistance. The kind of information their nephew would now have access to could be critical for the fight against the Germans. My father, still a teenager, as a new and personal driver for this top Nazi commander, became a spy known to the Allies as the Observer. For the last year of the war, while driving General Lairs around northern Italy, my dad learned the locations of tank traps, landmines, ammunition tunnels, and every fortification between Florence and Milan. He observed the Germans' main defensive positions. He secretly documented troop movements. He took notes and photos. And he fed mounds of that crucial information to the Allies by using Uncle Albert's shortwave OSS radio. More than once, my father was nearly caught, which would likely have led to his torture and execution. But he kept the trust of an unwitting General Layers. My dad personally witnessed the Nazi persecution of Jews, as well as the working to death of slaves from many faiths and nationalities in work camps, hoping and dreaming that one day he could testify against those responsible. At midnight on April 24, 1945, upon orders from the resistance, my father single-handedly arrested General Hans Lairs and delivered him to the American command, which was led by 5th U.S. Army Major Frank Nabel. For the next five days, he became Major Nabel's personal guide and translator, at last discarding his uniform and the Nazi swastika. On April 28th, Pino and Major Nabel witness a hideous moment in Italian history the public desecration of Mussolini's body in Piazzale Loreto amid the hysteria and fanaticism of the frenzied Italian mobs. Hitler killed himself in Berlin two days later. With the deaths of the two fascist dictators, my father thought he was finished with the war. But in fact, the war wasn't quite finished with him. In early May, the famous Brenner Pass through the Alps was the most dangerous corner of Europe. The German army was retreating from Italy through the pass into Austria. Thousands of Nazi troops who refused to surrender were on the run, being chased down and cut off by Italian resistance fighters and the U.S. Army. In the midst of this, my father was asked if he would do America a favor and accept the final mission. The Americans asked my dad to be a guide one last time, leading one final escape from Italy. His mission was to drive an important, high-ranking Nazi from American custody to the Austrian border, where he could safely be interrogated for the intelligence he possessed about Hitler's Reich. Who was this top general my dad was enlisted to escort to safety? None other than the very man he had driven for, the very man he had arrested and turned over to the Allies just weeks before, General Hans Lairs. Distraught and tormented over the events of the last week of the war, my father accepted that final mission. You can only imagine the conversation in the car between my dad and General Lairs. 
By the evening of that same day, May 3rd, 1945, my dad delivered General Layers to the Americans awaiting for him on the Austrian border. That final escort ended my father's involvement in World War II, but like many of that greatest generation, the experience and the weeks preceding the war's end continued to haunt him for the rest of his life. And to hear the rest of Pino Lella's remarkable story, pick up Mark Sullivan's best-selling book about him, Beneath a Scarlet Sky. And thanks to the son, Michael, again, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org. Great job, as always, on this, Alex and Joey. Michael's story, his dad's story, a great World War II story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell all kinds of stories here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Today, we have a story from our own little piece of the earth, and we're broadcasting about an hour south of Memphis in beautiful Oxford, Mississippi, small town America. This one comes from the Meisenheimers. Faith brings us their story. Ah, oh, hi guys, I'm Miller Mileshammer. I'm nine years old, and I'm a third grader Adele Davidson. And I have cystic fibrosis. Today, I will be interviewed by, by Faith. That is Miller Meisenheimer. As he told us, he is a third grader at Della Davidson Elementary School. He also told us that he has cystic fibrosis. Before the 1980s, people diagnosed with cystic fibrosis would rarely make it into their 20s. In less developed countries, the odds of living past the age of 15 is extremely low. Not only has cystic fibrosis taken its victims early in life, it gives them a very poor quality of life with numerous complications. In decades past, cystic fibrosis has been nothing short of a death sentence. Leading cause of death for those with cystic fibrosis is respiratory failure and chronic progressive pulmonary disease. Miller's entire family was able to come into our studio to talk about their experience after their children were diagnosed with this terrifying disease, cystic fibrosis. Tyler and Lindsay have three boys, nine-year-old Miller, who we just heard, six-year-old Aaron, and four-year-old Bennett. Here's Tyler Meisenheimer. So today we just want to share a little bit about our story and our journey um, as our family takes on cystic fibrosis every day. Lindsay, you want to share a little bit about uh, CF and what that means for our family? So um, we, Miller was uh, our first, our old, he's our oldest, he's our first child. We um, found out when he was about five weeks old that he has cystic fibrosis. We really didn't know much about the disease and we didn't know, um, you know, how it happened, what that, what that meant for his life. So we, 
went in, we saw to Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Memphis. We saw a team of specialists, the main one being pulmonologist. We see nutritionist and we see respiratory therapist. So we, we see quite a few people every time we go. So they told us a little bit about cystic fibrosis. Basically, both Tyler and I have a um, defective gene that we passed on to Miller and also uh, his brother, his youngest brother, Bennett. So they are both affected with cystic fibrosis. And uh, Aaron, our middle child, is not even a carrier. So genetics are a funny thing. So cystic fibrosis, uh, like I said, it's caused by defective genes. Now there are over 1,500 different uh, genes, uh, deformed or defective genes. Our boys have the most common, which is del- double delta F five hundred eight. So they have two copies of the of the five hundred eight del. With theirs, the there is a protein that does not fold properly. It doesn't get up to the cell level, and there are not gates to release this protein. What that in effect does is it causes a salt to water imbalance in the cells. So that makes their mucus thick and sticky. So that affects every part of their body. The you know the main thing, the what, what we do our therapies and every day, that is to try to help clear their lungs, which of course has the most. It's most affected by the mucus, but there's also you know liver, pancreas, kidney. Everything is affected. Um, so they actually because when they were born, we found out right away that they're pancreatic insufficient because of that thick mucus that has clogged the pancreas that doesn't work properly. So they take pancreatic enzymes whenever they eat anything. Lindsay's a lot more scientific than I am. Um, CF is a genetic progressive lung disease and it's life-threatening. And so what she was kind of describing what actually is taking place inside the body of a patient with CF, but we also have daily treatments and daily care in order to keep them healthy and well uh, throughout their lives. So there's a lot that we do every day just to kind of keep them as healthy as we possibly can. Miller had no signs or symptoms at first. We didn't know anything was wrong until about two weeks after he was born. We got the results from his, um, his newborn screen. So what that tells us is, or what, what it told us, is he has an elevated IRT level. And that what that measures is how in distress his pancreas is, because going back to pancreatic insufficient. So he was, he was, again, born that way. We went back into his pediatrician. We had the heel prick test done again. I call about the results and we're told it's fine. It's totally normal. We, we were so excited. We went out to celebrate. We went out to eat. And we actually get a call a few days later saying, oh, never mind. That was uh, somebody else's. So we're actually going to need you to come back in and do another heel prick test. So we go back in and it is still elevated at that point. So we go to Le Bonheur and get the, it's what's called a sweat test. So they put just little electrodes on them and make them sweat and measure that that salt level in his in his sweat because again this is um, a salt to water imbalance in the cells so and just I mean kind of back to present day you know when he is um, especially in the summertime and he's sweating a lot he has to drink a lot more he has to eat really salty foods because he loses a lot of salt through his sweat so he can get dehydrated really easily 
when we got the call from the doctor that he does in fact have cystic fibrosis, I remember I was sitting on the couch and he, I mean, five five week old baby is, uh, he's just staring up at me and it was this really odd, like I'm crying and he's looking up at me like, what? what's wrong? Like you're, this is, yeah, I'm fine. Look at me. I'm good. And it was, it was the most oddly reassuring stare that, you know, I could ever imagine. It was, it was a kind of a, he he's brought me a lot of peace in that very emotional uh, moment of learning that your life is about to change drastically. And you're listening to Lindsay and Tyler Meisenheimer. Hearing the news no parent wants to hear. And when we come back, you're going to hear how this family handles this news, how they triumph over it and live with it. The Meisenheimer family story. The story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories. We've been listening to the Meisenheimers tell their story. They're a family of five with three boys, and two of their sons have been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. They were telling us about when they first heard about their son, Miller, and his diagnosis. We return now to Faith with the story. Men and women often handle tragic news very differently. Here, Tyler shares the thoughts and feelings he had when he found out his brand new son was sick. When we found out about Miller, I was at work, and and we lived up in the Memphis area. Uh, My office was about 30 minutes away from home at the time, and I was about to have a big meeting with my team, and uh, I stepped out to take the call where they confirmed he had it. You know, at first, I just kind of panicked and I just I told my boss at the time I, I have to I have to leave I have to go home I'll explain later and I just I just got in the car and drove home and I was I was angry honestly uh, I had a very uh, interesting conversation with God uh, on that car ride home I just went in and hugged Lindsay and we cried together um, it was painful our parents were calling us to let us know, hey, it's all going to be okay. We're going to get through this. We're not going to do without anything, and uh, everything's going to be fine. You know, quickly, I found some comfort from some online support groups for CF and did find some additional comfort two days later when we met with our care team at Labonner. Cystic fibrosis is a mouthful. Any sort of disease that affects young children can be scary. But the Meisenheimers have learned that from the outside looking in, their kids can seem totally normal. You know, when when we were, again, first introduced to our, our new life affected by CF, we, it's a, they called it an invisible disease. 
though. Now, of course, there are cases where it has gotten to a more extreme uh, scenario that somebody might be on oxygen, somebody may be wheelchair-bound. However, we, we, we don't foresee that, you know, happening to our boys. And But basically, you can't see what's going on inside. They look perfectly normal. They're running. They're playing. And it's, for the most part... A, a pro it's it's a positive you know our kids can blend in they make friends they don't have any <clears throat> issues nobody looks at them funny which I mean I would never condone regardless of how a child looks but that's not anything we've ever, ever had to worry about the only negative I would say is sometimes it's almost forgotten <laughs> like there have been times even my myself included where you know have we went out to eat and we're about to, everyone's starting to eat and, you know, Miller's like, wait, where are my enzymes? So, I mean, it's something that we, um, we just have to always be aware and even though we can't see it. This disease may not be as obvious, but forgetting about it can put the children in a dangerous situation. Here, Tyler shares a bit about what their daily lives are like with the extra care that is involved. You know, anytime you go from, uh, just your spouse and you living together and then you start a family and, and you, you you bring children in the world. It, it's life-changing no matter what. And this was this was even more life-changing because of the extra care. One of the, the first um, bits of advice we ever, we got from his care team in Le Bonner is you can't put him in a plastic bu- bubble. He, he has to live his life. You have to do all the things and try all the things just as you normally do. So we do every we do extracurricular activities, we do sports, we do a lot of things, but it it's just a it, it's a strong commitment from both Lindsay and I to make sure that everything gets done that's supposed to get done. He does treatments, and this is when he's feeling well. He does treatments twice a day, uh, in thirty minutes in the morning, and you know thirty or forty minutes in the evening time. Um, that's every single day. There's never a day off. We still make ourselves available and really just kind of live for our our kids and for their childhoods to make sure they're as happy and healthy as we possibly can. And, and we just, we make commitments to make sure that they're living their life to the fullest and that CF doesn't take over their life, that they still get to do the things that every child should be able to do. I've played football, I've soccer, swimming, and I love traveling because I always want to get to all the 50 states. I've been to Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina. And of course, I've been to Mississippi because that's where I live. As Miller told us, he's able to travel and participate in various activities. Despite all that Miller and his younger brother are able to do, they still have a life-threatening disease that has taken many before them. The extra care can be overwhelming, but Lindsay helps put this care into perspective. Uh, I can't even think of the num- how many times I have been asked by other mothers, you know, I don't know how you do it, how do you manage it? And I mean, but my answer to all of them is you would too. I mean, that's, it's just, you do everything you can for your kids. And I mean, it's, regardless of what that care entails, whether you have a perfectly healthy child that's getting picked on at school, well, you're going to you're going to make sure that you protect your child. Or if there is, you know, like in our situation, underlying health issues. And I mean, there have been times where we've had to kind of 
make sure that they are involved. Like even if, cause they, for instance, I mean, I remember um, on uh, school trips, I would always try to come along and make sure that everything's being taken care of. And now that, you know, they go to a public school that it's not an issue cause there's typically a nurse that comes, but, but I just make sure I've always gone and made sure that they, you know, there's nothing that they're missing out on. You just, you do everything you can for your kid. The hardest thing is, you know, just, it seems so easy for, for other families. I mean, you know, they can pick up and go on a trip and, you know, then if they, they can send their kids to grandparents and like in a t-shirt and like one change of underwear and like, they're good. And, you know, for us, it's that's just not the case. We have to pack medical equipment. We have medicines that need to be refrigerated that, you know, we have to send ice packs and send, or send them in ice. That, to me, is the hardest part is just that we, we can't fly by the seat of our pants. I mean, and even when we'll go on family trips, and again, everyone's very supportive, but... It's like if I have, uh, if there's somebody in the family that's not making plans, it's like, okay, I'm sorry, we cannot, <laughs> we can't just do whatever we want. We absolutely have to have a plan from the time we leave the house till the time we get home. That's something that's very hard to understand for anyone that doesn't deal with this. And I completely get that. I mean, I, I no, we wouldn't be like this either. I think that's the hardest part. You know, the, the boys have to get up so early to get therapy done and get to school on time, which I also cannot complain about because Tyler gets up 30 minutes before me and starts him on everything. <laughs> so I really, I, I, I can't complain about a thing, but definitely, I mean, just the ease. It would be what, you know, the only thing that, that we really find ourselves envying. It's easy to compare your life to other people even though you don't know what always happens behind closed doors in other households, it appears that people live very comfortably. We don't always have the same opportunities that even some of our peers and some of our fam, our friends have, and even some of our family has, but we do things kind of differently and we do things together as a family and we love each other and we support each other. I think Lindsay's the hardest working woman I've ever been around, uh, how she balances you know, caring for the kids and her job and, you know, working 50 plus hours a week. You know, I'm kind of a selfish person. Uh, We all are, right? But being around the kids kind of pushes you to be a little more selfless. And it's almost kind of a requirement if you want to be good at this job. And then you have to remind yourself that I'm not the one going through it. They are. The kids are. So, That gives you kind of a a sense of strength and and patience there to know that it's your kid that's dealing with this physically. It's not you. So if you're going to, if you're going to feel sorry for yourself or having to care for them, then, you know, maybe as, as a man, maybe you need to man up and, and, and get over it a little bit. And you've been listening to Tyler and Lindsay Meisenheimer. And so often we've been asked by our listeners to talk more about our town. We've been talking about all the other towns in this country. And so that's why we're bringing you these stories. And they're all kinds. And uh, we want to hear from you the kinds of stories that you're going through when we return more of the story of the Meisenheimer family when we come back. This is Our American Stories. 
And we continue with our American stories, and we last left off hearing the Meisenheimer family share their journey with cystic fibrosis. Two of their three children have it from a gene mutation passed down from their parents. We return to Faith with the story. One of the common trends in marriages with children with special medical needs is separation and divorce. Children with medical issues can bring a whole new type of stress into the marriage. It's important to work. It's important to work together and maybe even let one another break down every now and again. There are, you know, breaking points and we just kind of have to have a little pity party and then we come back because that's all that, I mean, the, there's no other option. Um, Tyler's very supportive of like, okay, go, go have a girls weekend. Like you deserve it. I'll, I'll pick it up. I'll pick up the work and because it, it's, it's work. It's a lot for one person. So, but I'm, I'm very thankful for him and it is, it does add a whole layer of, of, challenge to a marriage, which marriage is already hard. I mean, it's already compromised. It's already hard. It's at work. I mean, constantly. We thankfully had a very solid foundation, I feel like, before. We've absolutely had challenges and fights. I don't know. I mean, it really has never been over the care. I feel like we've just done what we needed to do, and nobody really you know, second guess is the other. You know, sadly, I've been there. Like Tyler said, there are a lot of groups out there for parents of children with cystic fibrosis. I've seen a lot of, you know, my husband won't do anything um, he, or he won't pick up the weight. He won't help take care of the child. And um, I, I typically don't see it the, the other way as much. There are a lot of people that say we're, we're separating. We can't we can't make it work. It's heartbreaking, and especially just knowing how much care it takes. I just don't know how, you know, single parents can do it. I think Tyler and I value each other even more, just knowing what what our daily schedule looks like, and we don't take each other for granted. Yes, I, I think the divorce rate. I think we looked this up one time, or it, it came across a computer screen. I, it, it may have been like around 90% when the parents have a child with any kind of medical condition, 90%. Um, Lindsay and I just have, you know, we, we talk, we communicate. We're not perfect, of course, um, but we know that we're both all in 100% and, um, you know, that we're both committed to the family, to taking care of the kids and doing everything we can and deep down, we both know that we're in it for our family. We're committed to these kids. We're not going to be a statistic. We're not going to be a family that's broken up about this, where I'm not going to come home one day and say, you know what, I really don't want to deal with you guys anymore. I'm, I'm leaving town. See you later. Have a nice life. That's not how either of us were raised. And I think a large part of that also is, is faith. Our faith has been tested in a lot of ways over the years. You know, we still have bad days, plenty of them. Plenty of them. <laughs> but um, that certainly helps. Along with their daily care, the Meisenheimers go to Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Memphis for quarterly visits to make sure everything is going well. One of the biggest risks with cystic fibrosis is getting sick. Every time that they are sick, we're on high alert. Because a, a common cold for them could be could end up a hospital Day because, I mean, if it gets in their lungs, then that's detrimental. 
it can be bad. It can lead to IV medications, hospital stays. With the stomach bug, we actually, last year, Miller got the stomach bug. Our sweet Aaron, our middle one, always seems to be the one to bring it home. Um, <laughs> but I think he's, uh, he's, he's our hugger and our loving child. So I think he always, that's probably why he, he brings it home. But he, so he unfortunately gave that to Miller last year and that led to a stomach paralysis after the stomach bug was out. About a week after he, that he was over the stomach bug, he all of a sudden was not able to eat normally, not able to digest his food. He couldn't keep anything down. It was about a hundred times worse than the actual stomach bug itself. Thankfully, we were able to use some medications and kind of reboot and restart. I've known uh, of another mom that had a child with the stomach paralysis, and I mean, it ended up having to have, they had to have surgery, and so it, it can be an issue. So with their digestive tract, it, it is a little more um, prone to things that can, can go wrong. So we always add, you know, probiotics, multivitamins. I mean, I do all sorts of <laughs> ginger and, you know, B12 and just anything that I can to help out because I know that, that their bodies go through so much more than, than ours do. With sickness being so common for children, it would be easy as parents to live in fear of any possible illness. You know, of course, when, when he was first diagnosed, I mean, it's just your world comes crashing down. You don't know what's about to hit. I mean, it's, it's, you just, again, you look at this five-week-old baby and you just think, how is this possible? Like, you, children shouldn't be sick. That's just not right. But, you know, we, it is, a, it's a, it is a scary world out there. <laughs> it is no matter if you have a, a, you know, medical condition or not. We have, of course, we are, uh, we try to be careful you know, we bring hand sanitizer everywhere, and I mean, we we try to do things to keep them healthy, but um, we also want to let them live. Um, it is something you everything is a conflict in your head with: Do I let them? Do I hold them back because I'm scared, or do I let them go because I want them to live? You know, I, it wouldn't be right as, as much as I would love to put them in a bubble and just keep them safe. And it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be fair to them. You know, they, they're they strong and uh, very active, adventurous boys. And we, we need to let them. Um, it, even going back to, you know, if they went to, you know, stay at at grandparents stay at do a camp or do anything where somebody else has to take care of them at all. I mean, like school, I mean, anything, um, you know, you always, they're never going to do it like mom and daddy, but <laughs> you have to, you have to let other people take care of them too. And that's, that's probably been the hardest. Just because they deal with something like CF doesn't mean they're not going to still deal with all the normal things that other kids deal with too. You know, it's it's hard. It's not like you, you get a break on something else because you deal with this major issue over here. Um, but as far as living in fear, I know that if I panic, if I live in fear, they're going to notice it. You know, your kids are, they're, you know, for the most part, 50% you, 50% your wife, and this young child, uh, and that you are responsible for preparing that child for adulthood. And 
So you just, you, you know, living in fear, it's one of those things that we don't really control what happens. We're not in control of our lives. We can do everything. We can take a lot of precautious things uh, like hand sanitizer or doing everything we can to care for them. But uh, we're not promised tomorrow and we just have to do everything we can now and not live in fear because they're going to notice if we are. And, and I don't want them to live in fear as well. And when we come back, the final installment of the Meisenheimer family story, the story of Miller and Bennett's cystic fibrosis, Aaron, the middle child, having to deal with that too. Because my goodness, there are implications for him. And we want to hear your stories too. Share them with us. Stories like this all around this great country. And clearly this couple was brought closer together. Uh, The husband picking up the slack. That divorce rate is staggering. It's also understandable. Uh, This can just break apart an already fragile relationship. These two, the mutual respect, the understanding, and letting each other blow off some steam now and then, and just, well, the other party just shutting up. That's the hardest thing to do in a marriage, with or without these problems, is letting somebody blow off some steam without comment. And I work on that and struggle with that myself in my own marriage. When we come back, more with Tyler and Lindsay Meisenheimer, the Meisenheimer family, here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories in the final installment of the Meisenheimer's story. They've been sharing with us what it's like having two children with cystic fibrosis, a life-threatening lung disease. Let's return to Faith. When you first hear that your child has been diagnosed, it can feel like your world is falling apart. The Meisenheimers have been through that twice now, first with Miller, then with Bennett which turned out to be two very different experiences. I mean, it it is going to be okay. It is going going to be extra work. You are going to worry more so, but they're going to have a full life. There's so much right now on the horizon, stuff that has already come out and stuff even that is is right around the corner. Um, We have... um, drugs right now that uh, Miller and Bennett are on that are at the first for the first time they are reaching the root of the problem they are treating the underlying cause of cystic fibrosis instead of just alleviating the symptoms of it um so it's it's very exciting and you know we just we just know that it is keeping their lungs healthier and it is it's prolonging their life and making it I mean, not not just prolonging, but making the day-to-day better and th- that they feel better. So Miller was, he was born in uh, 2011, and four short years later, when Bennett was, uh, he was born in 2015, it was, I was amazed at the difference. When we went and met with the panel of specialists uh, with Bennett, 
because they said, you know, come back in. We just want to go over everything. I know you did it with with Miller, but we just want to make sure you don't have any further questions, especially about now having two with the disease. Um, so we, when we went in, I just, I remember with Miller and it was like, you know, there's a lot of great things coming up and we're, we're excited and, and he's, he's going to do just fine. And with Bennett, it was like plan for his future because he is going to have one. I mean, it was, it was amazing to me, the difference and the hope and, you know, just everything that with, with, they were saying, they're like, your boys are going to be fine on average. Uh, CF patients are living longer, and they will continue to do so. The trends are very positive. Um, there are some really exciting medications that are showing some really promising results. CF gets no funding from the government at all. It's it's all of you know pharmaceutical uh, agreements and also goodwill, uh, you know, volunteer philanthropy events as well. So, um, but having said all that, um, it's it's amazing what what results these drugs are. They are uh, going to the underlying cause of CF. And, and I think there will be a day in the not too distant future where this disease will be manageable uh, tr- tremendously, where, you know, you may not even have to do your treatments. This And this is all coming from the CF Foundation that Lindsay and I follow very closely and some of what their, you know, doctor experts are saying as well, scientists as well. Um, so we're just very excited. Uh, you know, they're going to have careers. They're going to have families. They're going to be able to give back to society just like everybody else is. And, um, I, I, you know, there's a lot of hope and it's going to continue to, to grow. This hope can take away a lot of the burden of the disease. But as Tyler said, his kids are the one living with the illness. Miller's experience is different than that of his parents. Miller has all sorts of interests. One of those includes writing about his life, even sharing what it's like having cystic fibrosis as a nine-year-old. I, I actually am putting it out in a journal, which I'm making out a book, and I'm going to make it famous. <laughs> oh, I'll just, I'm going to put all of, I'm going to put all this, all of this stuff. Okay, really? I don't think there was enough chapters for my whole life of what's going on because there's always a new thing every day sometimes i can't fit every moment in my book i write about my birth and and you know halloween and christmas and i would definitely put in like cf stuff Despite his cystic fibrosis, Miller is obviously a very funny and fun-loving child. He loves being a part of the different money-raising events for his disease that his parents help put together, like Bowling for Breath. We have a fundraiser here at the local bowling alley every fall, and usually in September, and uh, it's fun. We we basically rent out all the lanes, and we have teams of you know five or six people, and there's usually a theme, and people dress up, and last year, Miller spoke at that. He, we gave him the microphone. He gave a short little speech and got to watch and see all these adults dress up and as different things. And um, so it's fun. And in, a lot of our friends and family do it in the community. And so we, you know, again, we really appreciate the support. The Meisenheimers work hard to raise money and promote awareness of cystic fibrosis. They even had the opportunity to speak to some pharmacy students at Ole Miss about the work they are doing to help cystic fibrosis patients. 
Miller showed the students all the different things he does to stay healthy with cystic fibrosis and how their work as pharmacy students is helping young kids just like him. Yeah, I showed him me taking my pills, me taking my treatment. <clears throat> and I do like two three pound weights and two three pound weights in one hand almost every day. And I do butterflies and I do push-ups and, and okay, the curls and overhead are what I do with two weights in one hand. Because our next door neighbor is also working out and he has five pound weights, so dad wants it to be six pound weights. Oh, she gets some more weights, dad. As recommended by his care team, he does some exercises. <laughs> he can say things with a straight face and be the funniest guy in the room, and he doesn't even mean to be, so. We had a contact, a, a few contacts. Um, there was a the second year pharmacy student that uh, last year did a team for Bowling for Breath. Um, and so we got to know them, great kids. Um, and there there was a, another a professor that has some, a CF tie, and um, Tyler was in communication with him, and he just said, hey, if you want to come talk to our second-year students, um, you know, that would be kind of putting a face to what they're doing, that, you know, this is who they're going to be serving, this type of this type of person um so he got up and in front of over a hundred second year pharmacy students and he did a song and dance and uh was pretty upset whenever we would take the microphone away from him in fact (laughs) it was for an entire hour and 20 minute long lecture Mm -hmm. and we were up on a stage with over a hundred pharmacy students sitting there watching us and Lindsay and i were you know, pretty anxious, pretty nervous, honestly. And he got right up there and was as comfortable and made him laugh and want to talk about Halloween because it was in October and uh, showed him how he does exercises and all that and was dancing. It was, uh, but they, you know, it, it was, it was, they all laughed. I mean, they all came up afterwards and said that was, you know, one of the, the best things that we've experienced being in pharmacy school and um, so, you know, I think it was nice to see kind of a living example of what they study. So we um, that. Yeah, there were a few students actually that came up after and, you know, just thanked us for being there. One was in tears. I mean, she just said this is an amazing story and it you know makes me really love what I'm going to do. Um, so, I mean, it was. It was it was very eye opening for them. Um, now we and the, because of that, also one of the students um, had he's he's putting on a golf fundraiser and he was looking for um, a, a um, charity to to do to use and they so he is now doing because Miller came and spoke that day. Um, he's doing the fundraiser. He wanted that to go toward the CF. It, it has changed so much. It used to be, if somebody was my age and was born and diagnosed with this, it was going to it was very bad news. Um, they probably would have said, you're not going to make it to college. If you do, you're lucky. Um, it's not that anymore. So it's, it's very positive. And of course, it can be scary. And of course, you know, in today's world of social media, we see the good, the bad, the ugly. We hear about the, the, the bad stories of, you know, people's lives ending you know, prematurely, and it's it's really tough. But I just know, and 
you know, we have to use our faith really to kind of to guide us through this is that good or bad, that's not our son. And we have to do everything we possibly can. And it is in God's hands. And, um, you know, we were put here for a purpose, to take care of our children. We'll do everything we can to do that. I'm Faith, and this is Our American Stories. And beautiful job on that, Faith. And thanks to Tyler and Lindsay for sharing, and thanks to Miller for sharing, too. Um, something tells me he can have his own podcast soon. And for all the families going through these kinds of things, this is how America handles things. These are ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things day to day in all of our neighborhoods. And nice to hear about these pharmacy students because, my goodness, the work that pharmaceutical companies do in this country to enrich and better our lives is remarkable. And that a death sentence is not handed down uh, to young people because of new things and new technology and new innovations in the pharmaceutical world. My goodness, so many families depend on the drugs and the medicine that allow, well, life to be extended and health to be extended. If you have stories like theirs in your town, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Meisenheimer family story, Tyler and Lindsay and Miller, Aaron and Bennett, all five here on Our American Story.